My name is Maximus Pettus. Today I fight for the honor of the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius and for my murdered family. I fight this lion and those three guys over there with cages on their heads. Who are you? I'm the referee, Edus Hoculus. And that's a personal foul, touching the lion below the waist with your spear. Below the waist? It's a lion. It doesn't have a waist. Free kick! Ow! You let a guy with a cage on his head kick me? He's not a guy with a cage on his head. He's a Syrian from Antioch. That's their traditional fighting costume. Warning against Maximus for ethnic slur. Now can I stab the lion? Well, there's the tuck rule. If the lion tucks his tail, you have to give him 30 seconds. There's also a catch rule. That says if you start running, the lion will probably catch you. I guess it's not so much a rule as an observation. How can there be so many rules? If we didn't have rules, there would be chaos. This is chaos. A lion and three guys are trying to kill me in front of 50,000 paying customers. How is that not chaos? You have to stop talking to me. They put in a lot of rules this year that speed up the games. There are 50,000 people here and no bathrooms. You can't just dance around out here. Go kill the lion or the guys or get killed or something. Okay, here goes. Hey, you killed the lion. Not bad, huh? Wait, the emperor is asking to review the play. What does that mean? Well, they've got guys sketching this whole thing on wax tablets. They're going to take a look and see if I missed the call. You might have fouled the lion again. What happens if you miss the call? Let's just say that's not the only lion they have. It's hard out there for an ump. And that's the nature of our show today. So let's welcome the guys who keep getting tossed out of games for nut shots. When he's a spectator, Colin McEnroe. All right. So, oh, by the way, that's actually apparently true about the Colosseum. Or at least I was at the Colosseum in Rome two weeks ago. And I was told <laughs> that they can't figure out where the bathrooms were. And the Romans were really good at bathrooms, too. So, I mean, they, they should have had some. Or maybe you just were supposed to hold it. Uh, anyway. We are going to talk about refs, uh, umpires, refs, uh, the people who make the calls. Uh, most of them are not famous. Uh, if they are famous, uh, it's usually for a reason that they don't want to be famous. Joe West is probably the most famous baseball umpire right now, but that's because he has a lot of problems with players. And if he's not the most famous umpire, that's then it's Jim Joyce, who's the guy who, by his own admission, and he felt terrible about it, made a bad call that ruined uh, a perfect game in 2010. So you don't want to be a famous umpire for the most part. But on the other hand, you got to have good umpires, good referees, uh, and they probably should be honored more than they are. We're going to talk uh, here at the beginning about times when they have been honored more. We're also going to talk about ways in which we can create a more civil environment for these people, who, you know, for the most part. Well, in the case of people working in, you know, kind of the lower rungs of sports, the amateur level runs of you know, your kids league and stuff like that. A lot of people are out there basically out of the goodness of their hearts. Uh, so how can we make their lives a little bit better than they sometimes are? But let's start. Uh, and I should also say later in the show, we're going to talk to Howard Webb, who probably is one of the most famous referees of any kind in the world. Uh, he was he's not retired, but he was a soccer or what they call football ref. Um, and uh, if you lived in Europe and cared about football, and those are basically synonymous things anyway, um, you would know who he was. Uh, we're also, we'll also talk about the issue of prejudice, uh, racial bias in refereeing. That'll be towards the end of the show. We're going to start right now with uh, Barry Mano, a creator and founder of Referee Magazine, as well as president of the National Association of Sports Officials, uh, also a former NCAA Division I basketball uh, official, and Sarah Bond, associate 
associate professor in the classics department at the University of Iowa and a contributor to hyperallergic.com, which is a a website uh, with critical writing about art, and and to Forbes.com. Sarah's article, The Fall of the Roman Empire, The Short History of Ancient Referees. uh, And Sarah writes a lot about sports for Forbes. Um, So, Sarah, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, Our intro was fanciful in nature, but maybe not as fanciful as people think. People... When they visit the Colosseum, they don't necessarily think about there being umpires. But ancient uh, Greece and, and ancient Rome, uh, officials were a, a real thing. T- tell us about, who, I mean, who were these referees? Well, it depends on if you're talking about the Greek or the Roman world. But if we go all the way back to the Olympics in 776 BCE, which is when the Olympics began, we know that there was a, a board of judges, usually 10 of them, that that in judgment of the athletes that were coming to Olympia to compete in the games and that there was a cessation of all warfare and all fighting among men except for um, the athletes while the Olympic games were going on. And this board of kind of referees and slash umpires that were putting on the games usually went in groups of three to each of the events to make sure that all were followed. And, and these refs, um, you know, these days, obviously, there are, I mean, refs are, are important. They're very important in professional sports, but uh, they often take a lot of abuse from fans and maybe even from players. I, I sense from your writing that the, their equivalent back uh, in, say, the, Oli- the early Olympics, it was very different, right? These were very, very respected personages. Right. This was a very honorable thing to be chosen usually by lot. Uh, from the polis, that is to say the city that you're from, in order to become a a giver of names. And this was called the Hellenodikai. And these are around the 6th century BCE. We know that Hellenodikai were these judges who would go to various games and would oversee them. And they were usually, it was seen as a high status thing that you were trained for for many months ahead of specifically the Olympic Games. And so there, there was a lot of respect that people local people would try and really get this as a position of honor to become a referee. Um, There's also a sense that they were kind of prominent in other ways, right? We know just from mosaics, from the way that they're dressed and positioned in the mosaic, that they're not these very subsidiary forces in the drama. They are kind of a little bit more front, if not front and center. Right. So most of the evidence that we have, we have mentions of referees and judges from the Odyssey and from the Iliad and from uh, a lot of later Greek texts. But most of what we know about the Greek referees uh, come from ceramics. And these ceramics have usually two athletes that are either wrestling each other or perhaps boxing with each other or competing in the pancratian, which is kind of like MMA fighting. And the referee is standing there usually in a very long flowing garb, uh, kind of like a tunic. And they have a, a long stick that they can use in order to intervene if they need to. And they can use it in order to call a foul on the wrestlers or the other athletes. Um, or they can use it to flog somebody who is getting out of hand in the crowd. They have the power of corporal punishment. So just imagine if baseball umpires today had the ability to flog somebody who was yelling at them. 
Right. Well, then that, that would be like the whole afternoon, probably. Um, so um, and we should even say that the word umpire, I mean, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Well, since you mentioned baseball umpires, Bill Clem, who is often regarded as kind of the uh, the, the divinity uh, from which all other baseball umpires are de- uh, are descended. He had a somewhat imperial style to him. And he famously said when he was asked uh, about a pitch, he said, it ain't nothing. Uh, until I call it, uh, that the pitch actually existed like Schrodinger's cat in this kind of quantum state until he made a decision about it, which kind of indicates to you the the role that Bill Clem uh, assigned to himself. But that word, Sarah, actually does suggest uh, it has the notion of somebody who's not on a par, not on an equal footing with the athlete, but above the athlete, right? Right. So the etymology of the word umpire, as you suggested, comes from originally Latin, which is non-par, right? And then it gets turned into Old French and then Old English, which is non-par, and then later on umpire. So that just means not equal. In other words, not equal to the people that they are judging. They are not equal to the athletes and that they are over top of them, but also they're seen as the person that is the tiebreaker, that is going to make sure that there is an even-handed fight. So, yeah, that, that goes all the way back to uh, Latin etymology. So um, I'm going to add Barry Amana to this conversation. Uh, Barry, we somehow or other went from there, uh, from that kind of esteem to uh, a situation where, you know, I mean, I've been in situations, I've been at games, uh, even at like, you know, at a youth basketball game or a youth soccer game where I thought, wow, they really, you know, they these fans feel pretty comfortable. Often parents of players on the field feel pretty comfortable heaping abuse on somebody who's probably doing this uh, on a volunteer basis. I mean, what happened? How did uh, sports officials, I don't know, how did they wind up in the situation they're in now? Does anybody know? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, based on listening to Sarah, it's, it's still an honorable undertaking. Mm-hmm. Being a sports official continues to be an honorable undertaking. Uh, it has become more difficult in the world in which we find ourselves. And in some measure, why are we surprised? I've been quoted many times that, that sports is simply life with the volume turned up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why in some measure are we surprised? We live in an age when we like things loud and brash. We live in an age when we want second opinions when somebody delivers some bad news to us, our first reaction is, I want another opinion. Uh, that comes along with, uh, with freedom, and, and most of that's okay. It, it also plays out in the sports world, and that's where we find ourselves. And, and so you have the advent of replay and other technological aids for sports officials. Uh, I think there's a certain coherence there uh, to how this has evolved. Right. So um, we should say that you founded Referee Magazine, at least partly uh, after you, you come from, I guess, a family of referees. Uh, your, your brother, Mark, an NBA ref, was getting uh, picked on uh, about a particular call. Is, isn't, is, in fact, that one of the reasons you actually founded a magazine about officiating? Yeah, I did. Uh, we, in fact, we just celebrated our 500th issue of the magazine. So we've been doing this for 41 years. And part of the, uh, the reason that spurred me to start a magazine, a publication to have our own voice, because we had no voice back then, was a game involving my 
my older brother Mark, who was a brand-new referee in the NBA and happened to be a game between the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. He made a call at the end of that game at the Chicago Stadium, which uh, ended up uh, resolving itself that the Lakers win the game. And, of course, uh, the Chicago Stadium went crazy. Uh, my brother had to be protected by uh, uh, armed security to get out of the place. And there was a huge article the next day in the front of the Chicago Tribune sport page about how lousy my brother was. Uh, and four days later, because things were slower back then, four days later, the NBA office from in New York came out and said, in fact, what my brother had done was correct. And that got like one inch in the one ads. And that just sort of irritated me uh, to no end. So that spurred me on that, you know, we need to tell our story from our standpoint with, without fear or favor. And, and that's what led to the start of Referee Magazine in 1976. And then three and a half years later, formed the National Association of Sports Officials, uh, which I serve as president to this day, and we have roughly 29,000 dues-paying members in that association. So, yeah, I, I will say that growing up, I'm, I'm well, I'm old, basically, but um, so growing up when I was 12 or 13 years old, I read Jocko, which was the uh, biography or memoir, autobiography of Jocko, Con Jocko Conlon, who was this kind of legendary baseball umpire. And I never thought about this the same way again, because, in fact, the minute that person has a voice and an ability to tell uh, his story or her story, um, you just think about the referee from a, in a very different way. For the most part, they're the least heard from people. And I will say also that um, as a young man, I would often be out just playing soccer or hanging around soccer fields or something, and I would get dragooned into officiating uh, kids' soccer games. And I, I, I didn't get as bad as about what you're about to hear, but I was often surprised at the things that I was blamed for. Let's hear a little montage of how bad things can get out there. I didn't, you touch me, you moron! The game, is, this game is forfeited. You stuck your finger in my not, chest and said I'm not going to have this harassment. You're insane. This game is over. I'm not no, going to be harassed. You're insane. Right. Your team is doing a good job. All the boys are doing a good job. You're the only one going at it, and you are a parent. You're horrible. You got to stop the game. You have the whistle. I will clear the entire sideline, and I will send you all home, and they will enjoy the match without you. No more. Now you know why we don't have referees out here, because y'all get on us and get on the kids and get on each other. You know, it, it does seem as though in kids' sports in particular, I mean, look, we've all seen professional athletes go at it uh, with a ref once in a while. We've seen managers get kicked out of games, sometimes intentionally. Uh, we've seen college players who don't like a call. Uh, but there's some way in which, I don't know, it seems, Barry, a little bit more contained or structured or, I mean, everybody understands basically what the parameters are for, for protesting a call. You get down into these more, you know, more primitive areas of sports where it's parents who maybe don't know that much about sports and kids who are just learning, learning a sport. I don't know. It's, it seems to me is that it gets worse there. Am I wrong? You're, des you're describing the perfect storm <laughs> at youth sports because you have the least, the least capable players and you have sort of the least trained coaches. You have sort of the least trained referees and then you have the most vociferous and invested fans slash parents, and that all comes together. One other component, uh, you know, you, you sort of have the least, and I, I keep using the word sort of, but you, you have the least 
security available at those games also. So by and large, sports officials, the men, women, and young people that do this, in some measure actually serve as their own security force at many of those contests. And that's that's a, a bad place to be in this day and age. Right. When you ref uh, soccer with little kids, uh, little kids' heads are not that far off the ground from where the little kids' feet are. So soccer balls are often kicked right into the little kids' faces because they're just in the way. <laughs> I was always surprised. Like Parents would start getting on me about this, that, you know, some kid would kick the ball and it would hit another kid in the face. And I would look at them and say, what do you want me to do about this? <laughs> there's, not, there's nothing that I can do that will stop that from happening. It's just kind of physics. Right. That's Recent, what... Recently, uh, NESO did a historic national survey of sports officials. Uh, over 17,450 sports officials answered 161 questions that, that we asked them. And what came out of that survey, I think, is important. 64% of them have had to remove a spectator for bad behavior. 57% of them had to step in and break up a fight or a skirmish during a game. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, 47% of them felt unsafe or feared for their safety due to bad behavior. These are sports officials for the first time ever having their voice heard through this this uh, national survey. And, and uh, It's just incredible. And, Barry, if they don't feel safe, they might be right. I mean, the most tragic story we have probably is the one from the uh, Utah Recreation Soccer League, right? A, a referee right. lost his Ricardo life. Ricardo Portillo. Yeah. Yeah, Ricardo Portillo, yes. Same thing. I mean, here you had a player that was very mad at referee Portillo and came over blindsided him with a punch to uh, the side of his temple, and Ricardo Portillo died on the soccer pitch. Just incredible. Let, let me ask you this. I mean, one way that to, to take some of the pressure off, as we have said, and we're going to talk to Howard Webb about this too, but it is video review because ultimately, you know, I particularly like the way they do it in Major League Baseball where, you know, it just sort of, they go to New York, right? The whole thing goes to New York and it gets decided there. There isn't even anybody present that you can yell at. Um but I think that's not enough, really. First of all, not everybody has video review. Is there a way in which we could change sports culture? I'm going to ask Sarah about this after I ask you, Barry, because Sarah's got a couple of thousand years of history to look at about this. But a way that we could change maybe just the way that the referees are are dressed or introduced to the people. Or You must have thought about this a lot. How do, how do you change the world so this stuff doesn't happen? Well, I, I think... The world has to understand why they have us there, and they have us there for one main reason, and that's impartiality. About 20 years ago, we established, we came up with a, a definition of excellent officiating, which is to ensure that the game is played by the rules while emphasizing fairness and safety and doing so in a manner that enhances the stature of sports officiating. That is our job. That is our only job. That impartiality has to rule the day for us. That's why if we got to the question about uh, what the referees do uh, during national anthems today when people uh, take a knee or whatever, uh, that's an easy one because they're there, we're there to be impartial. So I think those of us that are invested in sports as players and coaches and fans and parents have to understand why we have these people there, just like we have judges in courtrooms. We have to show respect for what they're doing. And that means at times you're going to feel injured. You're going to feel you got a, an incorrect call and you just have to accept that and move on. Isn't that one of life's lessons, especially for young people? 
I also wonder if there's a way that the players can help, um, p- particularly at the professional level. I actually thought it was kind of cool. Uh, I think it was last year. Yeah, last year at the baseball all-star game, there was a moment. And because it's the all-star game, you can sort of do stuff that you couldn't do in a regular season game. So Nelson Cruz, a baseball player, got up to the plate, stopped everything, handed his cell phone, which he had in his pocket, to another player, Yadier Molina, and had a picture taken of himself with umpire Joe West, with his arm around uh, Joe West's shoulder. And I don't even really know what's going on in Nelson Cruz's head at that moment, but I thought it was a great thing because, I mean, it, it really is sort of a signal to the fans you know, that all of us, the players and the umpires or refs, are part of the apparatus of the game. This is not some segregated, you know, Indian caste system where the umpires uh, are, are, are regarded as inferiors. Yeah, and, and referees, certainly at the professional and the major college level, I mean, they're in a very visible role. Uh, they are held strictly accountable. Uh, the level of accountability today is, is incredible, frankly. Every single call and no call, every movement on the field, all of that is being judged. Uh, and I think that's all in, in very good shape, frankly. Uh, I think the men and women at those levels have really risen to the occasion. I mean, their success rate on calls when they blow the whistle, an example in the NBA, is roughly 94%. It's roughly the same in the National Football League. I think it might even be higher in the National Hockey League. So the men and women that are doing that are very, very good at what they do. The challenge that we have today uh, starts somewhat at the high school level, but the main problem is below the high school level. So, uh, Sarah, I want to come back to you. Uh, we should say Sarah's on Skype if you hear a little hiccup here. Um, so, Sarah, as you listen to the conversation I'm having with Barry, um, you having studied the history of all this, I, first of all, I want to maybe just uh, talk about that notion of impartiality. Was impartiality always the rule for the judges who judge sports in the Greco-Roman world? That was at least the theory that uh, you were going impartiality because in part um, the games were being put on oftentimes in the Greek world by a a religious group, right? So there's a religious aspect to games that isn't necessarily uh, present today in professional sports. Uh, so that's the that's a big part of it is that you're going to have impartiality based on the fact that these are oftentimes religious games in the Greek world. But in the Roman world, oftentimes the umpires were very much partial to whatever the crowd and the editor, that is to say the person putting on the games, actually wanted. So the name editor is the name we give the person who actually puts on the gladiatorial match. And then the summa rudis, would be the referee who would referee between the two gladiators. Um, I just wanted to kind of note, because earlier we were talking about fans having their input, is that rather regularly in the Roman world, after gladiatorial combats, um, the referee would be booed and yelled at. And we have a number of gladiatorial epitaphs that tell us that gladiators oftentimes blamed the referees for their losses and that there was a lot of ire between fans, players, um, that is to say gladiators, and also the the referees. So um, even though the referee was more respected in the Greek world, they were a little bit less respected within the Roman gladiatorial amphitheater. Um, You know, the last thing I was going to ask you, Sarah, to to sort of maybe... um, 
put a bow around some of the stuff that, that Barry's talking about. Uh, and from your writing, I sense that you think that there was a way in which these um, officials, these judges, umpires, referees of antiquity, and, and even more recent history, had faces and voices that made them more human. There are ways in which, uh, just even like in the case of baseball, the umpires are dressed in a way that almost removes a little bit of their humanity. Right. So I should say beforehand that I'm a Braves fan. And so the only name of an umpire that I can remember is Sam Hallbrook uh, because of the 2012 Braves Cardinals uh, wildcard game wherein the infield fly rule was invoked. And so that kind of gives you an idea that most of the time we only remember the names of umpires in infamy rather than the ones that are very successful, which is really most of them. Uh, And in antiquity, there were infamous umpires as well, but there certainly was a feeling as though you had to respect those umpires and that they had the ability to lay down ground rules that had to be followed. So Romans, we know particularly from mosaics that were laid into floors, we know that there were referees that had their own names and that were well known by the spectators that were going to the amphitheater because we have their names actually within these mosaics. And thus people must have known some of the names of these umpires, not just infamously, but because they were well known to other people. Um, So, Barry, uh, I think it's appropriate to let you uh, get the last word in on this segment. Uh, We're going to go after this to Howard Webb, as I said, a legendary soccer or football uh, umpire. uh, how much is in all the work that you do, you know, you, you cited uh, those survey results. Uh, you've been uh, running this magazine for a long time. I mean, do, how much stress is there on officials? I, I don't think we uh, talk about this very much. And I'm going to ask Howard the same question about himself. But I mean, I don't know. At the end of the day, when an umpire or a referee goes home, uh, do we know much about, you know, on average, how much stress they carry home with them? There's a lot of stress, and and you get compensated in this undertaking in one of two ways, or a combination of, you either get you know money money income or you get psychic income, as I put it. At the lower levels, a large section of that is psychic income. Uh, so you have to be the type of person uh, that uh, you know. I have a speech I give, which is you have to love it when they boo. If you're going to be in this undertaking, you really need to feel that way, that you have that strength of character, that you're going to do this game impartially and by the rules. And you're going to man-manage the game, as they say in soccer. You're going to deal with the human element of this. That's where we show our humanity. And at the end of the day, you got to pack it away and go home. And, and the next morning you get up, and 70% of these people at the amateur level have full-time jobs. And they go to their job, and then they leave, and they go work another game that night. That's the drill. Uh, if that makes you unhappy, then you need to go do something else, not this. All right. Well, listen, uh, thank you uh, to both of you. Uh, And first of all, I want to say as we head into this uh, break, you know, if you're listening out there and you're heading off to a Little League game tonight or you're going to be going to some soccer games, I guess they're almost year round at this point. I mean, think about this. (laughs) Think about this person who's out there running up and down the field with the whistle, probably not getting paid anything for it. And then behave accordingly. We could all uh, up our game a little bit in that way. Thanks so much to Barry Mano, uh, creator and founder of Referee Magazine, president of the National Association of Sports Officials, and to Sarah Bond, associate professor in the Classics Department at the University of Iowa, who has uh, researched and written about the lives of Greco Roman referees and judges of antiquity. We're going to take a little break. We'll come right back. Mr. Referee, Mr. Referee, you got to be kidding me. Mr. Referee, Mr. Referee, Mr. Referee. 
Mr. Referee, you got to be kidding me. Mr. Referee, Mr. Referee. This is one of the many things I could be wrong about, but I don't think I am wrong about this one. Uh, I mean, in America, I'm a big sports fan, and in, but in America, referees aren't particularly famous. I mean, if you showed the average sports fan pictures of 10 referees from any of the three or four major sports, I don't know, people might recognize Ed Hockley or something, but I just don't think that they would. Um, or, or they sort of wouldn't recognize many. But my next guest, if you showed uh, football fans, in, uh, as it's known, in, in the United Kingdom or a lot of the world, a picture of this next man, they would go, oh, that's Howard Webb. They might even say, there's that wonderful Howard Webb. Or they might say something maybe not so nice, depending on how they feel uh, about referees and refereeing in general. Howard Webb is joining us, general manager of the PRO, Professional Referee Organization, as well as former referee for the English Premier League and the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa, and the author of uh, a memoir about being uh, a ref. Um, thanks very much for joining us today. Hi, Colin. Hi. So um, I just want to begin. I mean, I, there can't be a sporting event in the world more pressurized and into which more emotion uh, and, and nationalistic feeling gets poured in than, than the World Cup. So what's the pressure like being the guy out there refing the World Cup? Well, it's, it's pretty intense, as you can imagine, you know, when you, you know that a billion people are going to be watching that final. Oh, by the way, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And uh, I, I'm not sure that I have been called the wonderful Howard Webb too many times, to be honest. And, and I'm, I'm also not too sure that it's uh, a good thing for a referee to be so, uh, so well known. It probably means that you've uh, been in the, in the spotlight one, one too many times. But, uh, but I guess it's a byproduct of being involved in this this amazing sport that, as you say, is just so high profile uh, in, in so many places across the world and, and becoming ever so more relevant in, in, in the U.S. as, as well. But, uh, yeah, the pinnacle is, is coming, isn't it? The World Cup finals in Russia, and I, I was lucky enough to take uh, take a part in the last two editions in uh, in Brazil in 2014 and, and South Africa in 2010. And, of course, like any, uh, any, any football soccer fan or, or any player, coach or official, you know, you want to be you want to be there. You want to be a part of it. And I was really, really, really fortunate, I guess, to have uh, have been at the last two. I should have mentioned your book, uh, "The Man in the Middle: The Autobiography of the World Cup uh, Final Referee." So, you know, one thing: if I were a referee, I would first of all, I would not be a good referee. And if I were a World Cup referee, I, I, what I wouldn't want to do would be make a call that would that people would remember. So if there's two or three minutes left in the game and you call a foul in the penalty area, penalty area and there's a potentially decisive penalty kick, you're going to be part of the story. There's just no way you're not going to be part of the story. I personally <laughs> would just never call anything like that. But you've been in that position, right, where you've had to make a call that you knew was the correct call, but, with the, but it was going to make Howard Webb a part of the big story of this game. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because a lot of people will, will say that the best, the best referees are the ones that you don't notice. Mm. And, and in many ways, that's true. And, um, you know, if you come off a game and nobody's talking about you in any way, good or bad, then as a, as a match official, I think in any sport, you're pretty, pretty happy with that. You know, you, you don't want to be the talking point. But what I found in my career, Colin, is that if you go into games with that sort of as a goal, not to be, not to be recognized, not to be noticed, then you do find yourself 
kind of um, lacking in those situations where you need to step up to the to the plate and you need to make that big call late in the game because if you if you don't if you, if you don't want to raise your profile in those situations you end up not doing the job that you're there to do you're not going to make the call that needs to be made and and, and therefore you end up being the, the the talking point because you've not made the call so you certainly need courage you need a lot of mental resilience and and uh, self belief to to go out there um, you know in the middle of a a sporting event that's being watched by thousands of people in the stadium or at home uh, and being played by players who you know, are going to want to appeal and, uh, and want you to, to see things their way and try to influence you where they can. And you've got to believe in what you're seeing and, and what you know and what you think and use your experience and make the, the best call. And sometimes it has to be a really brave call. You seem like a very calm uh, person right now, but then you're not actually refereeing a World Cup soccer or football game right now. Um, I don't know. How calm are you after a match that has been contentious? I mean, in the past, when you, have, uh, when you were an active referee doing these things, I don't know. Could you go to sleep at night or were you just lying awake rerunning these images in your mind? It kind of depends how the game how the game went really. I mean, for sure, officials feel emotions like like the players do. I guess different types of emotions, but but you're still feeling those emotions. And uh, everybody's got a desire to do well. And and when you make a call on the field, you immediately get some sort of instant feeling. You get a, an instant feedback from the players, and and you try to recognise what's a what's a natural reaction from a player and what's something that's more maybe orchestrated to influence your decision making from the players. But but you get feedback and you get a feeling about whether or not you've made the right call and and that influences your 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 feelings then uh in turn and and if you get that feeling that you've made a mistake that can be difficult to deal with uh, as an on-field official because maybe that happens early in the game and you've got the next 80 minutes to get through um you know in, in the knowledge that possibly you've made you've made a mistake now going into this year's world cup and what we've seen in mls this year is the use of video replays for the first time uh, and that's been a massive positive in my opinion to deal with those emotions that the referee feels because now they know that the chance of making a big mistake is 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 minimalized and and equally in game you've got somebody there checking what you're doing as you go through the match and and uh, intervening should you should you make a mistake so a lot of the stress and the worry that i felt before games or even during games has been taken away from the officials in, in the game now because of the existence of, of video replays. Yeah, let's talk about video replays. So, uh, you know, as um, a middling uh, football slash soccer fan and somebody who played a lot of soccer, um, I have a hard time imagine. I can imagine how great it would be for offsides, right? Video review would just is just made to, to adjudicate offsides. But there's so many other complex, judgmental, almost textural calls that, that get made during the game. How many of them are amenable to a video review? It's a good question. I, I, when you look at our sport, it, it, it has been um, a latecomer to the, uh, to the age of video replays when you compare it to uh, a lot of the sports here in North America, but even in Europe as well. Uh, they've embraced the, uh, the, the use of videos much sooner than we did. And, and I think that's probably borne out of the fact that the game is played in a certain way. You know, there's a lot of flow and tempo, not many natural stoppages where you can check the video. And also because I think you know, the amount of subjectivity in our sport where the referee has to determine how much force is used, whether the use of the arm for handball was accidental or deliberate and all of those sort of things. So I guess it, it was it was always seen as uh, something that was going to take a lot of thought and a, a lot of consulting before we could get to a place where we needed to uh, to Im implement it i think the the the, sort of like the strength of the argument for it suddenly you know tipped the balance and and it was 
obvious that we need to at least try this out um, because we saw situations, and we've seen them in all the World Cups going back over the years where, you know, really critical situations have happened and they've influenced the outcome of a, of a game uh, and affected the progress and created a lot of debate. So, you know, in my opinion, thankfully, we've got to a position where we've been given this extra tool, but the only way it's been successfully implemented, really, is by staying true to a high threshold of um, clear and obvious errors where it comes in to, to play. So, for example, if it is a subjective call, uh, one that, that's going to split opinion 50-50, that's not really clear either way, then the VARs are told not to get involved. And a lot of the training that the, uh, the video assistant referees have done is aimed towards consistently uh, identifying when they should or shouldn't step in based on the identification of what is and isn't a clear error. And we've, we've done a lot of that training, um, and we're seeing much more consistency nowadays uh, in the last uh, uh, few months compared to maybe when we first started the training uh, a couple of years ago. Right. I guess the other thing that the video review would be really useful for, because um, football is a kind of chaotic game in which there's a lot of flowing around, it's not like being a baseball umpire where you pretty much know where to stand all the time. Uh, but, I mean, one of your more controversial calls really was the result in 2010 of an obscured view, something you really couldn't see uh, as well as maybe you needed to. I assume video review in that situation is would would have been terrific. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, thank you for reminding me of the biggest mistake <laughs> in my career, Colin. Um, yeah, I should have sent off a player in the World Cup final in Johannesburg in 2010, a player from the Dutch national team uh, called Nigel de Jong. He, he made a tackle for a, a, a ball that was dropping, and he, he put his foot up, I, I assume, for the ball, but he, he got it badly wrong, and he, and he made full contact into the chest using the cleats, um, into the chest of a Spanish midfielder, uh, Xabi Alonso. And, and you, know, you don't need to be a really experienced um, soccer referee to know that that's a red card when you see the, the perfect angle. But but I didn't have quite the, the right angle on it. Um, knew it was a late contact, but didn't see the nature of the contact and, and gave the player a yellow card. Now, yeah, something like that, because it's it's so clearly an error when you watch it back. It's, it's not one that you know I could find a lot of support for the yellow card on it. I'm still looking for somebody who thinks it is a yellow card, in fact, uh, <laughs> eight, eight years on. Um, but it, it is such a clear uh, red card offence that that's, that's typically something that VAR would be really well-placed to deal with. But, of course, you know, not all situations are that clear. There are some which fall in the margins between yellow and red, depending on the amount of force used. So, again, the skill of the VAR is recognizing what is in that uh, clear and obvious error category, and that's a lot of the training that we've done here in MLS, but also what, what FIFA have been doing with their people that are taking out to Russia this this, uh, this month. Howard Webb, you've been uh, working and living here in the States for uh, a little while here now, and you know, as you can probably tell, American football fans, uh, the other kind of football fans, they're pretty extreme, and baseball fans are pretty passionate, and basketball uh, fans really care uh, about their teams, and so do hockey fans. I feel like the kind of sport that you refereed all these years had a, has a fan base that's just crazy with a capital C in a way that, that I, I, I guess I'm just sort of asking, uh, I'm back to that pressure question that we've been began with i mean were there i don't know did you get death threats did you get i mean what what was it like to be a referee in a sport where the fans are really kind of out of their minds a lot of the time yeah um i mean the sport is growing here and you know you, you see that you see the fans in, in mls are are really um you know really engaged with their teams and, and active at the stadiums if you go to some of the, the clubs that have joined recently like atlanta united it's like it's a it's a crazy place when you go there. The fans are really vocal and, and really active. That's the sort of thing you see in every stadium, 
when you go to the Premier League or when you go to the Champions League over in Europe. And, and what, in my experience, even more so in places like South America, of course, but also Africa. I mean, it's just it's so, so um, furtive. Their support for their teams is, is really, really evident when you go to these games. And, and you, do, you, do, you do feel that on the field. Of course, you know, you, you stay focused and you, 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 know, you concentrate on the job that you're doing. But, uh, but sometimes, you know, that, that emotion does spill over into, into other things. And, uh, yeah, over the course of my career, I, I received... Uh, death threats. In fact, um, 10 years ago, as of today, I, I was refereeing in the European Championships in uh, in Vienna, Austria, and refereed a game between Austria and Poland and gave a penalty against Poland in the last minute of the game, which um, I still maintain was a correct decision. It was, a, it's like you said a, a short time ago, you can make a correct call, but still be criticized later because it was influential in the outcome of that game. The penalty was scored. It made the, the final result 1-1. Um, it, w- it was, it was, you know, obviously um, met with a lot of dis- disappointment from the Polish fans, but some, some extreme reactions as well that, um, that you know, painted me as this big villain, and um, and you know, led to a number of, of, of death threats. I mean, that was from a real minority of people, of course. And I've got a lot of good Polish friends, and uh, I know a lot of the fans there are really passionate, decent soccer fans. So it's not representative of them as a nation or as their representative of their soccer uh, community, but but it, it does show. How sometimes a decision that you make, even if it's a right one, can be uh, can be met with those sort of extreme reactions that uh, really aren't uh, aren't that pleasant. Howard Webb, this has been an honor, and I could keep going uh, for a really long time with this conversation. But I have a producer who's waving his arms at me, uh, and I could be getting a yellow card pretty soon if I don't wrap up this interview. But uh, people should read your fascinating memoir about this uh, to learn so much more, more than I could possibly uh, have time to talk with you about today. Thanks for joining us, though. My pleasure. Enjoy the World Cup, Colin. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. And one reason we couldn't continue with Howard Webb is because we have another really interesting thing we want to get into with you. Because, in fact, uh, athletes come in uh, different, from different races, and uh, so do referees. So how does that affect the way referees call the game? Not at all? Well, you're going to find out. Mind us all just how you'd like the game play. You wouldn't want too much disruption out there on the pitch. Let us know your interpretation of the basic ground rules. So we're completely happy knowing that we'll get along. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Betsy Kaplan spent the show in the penalty box for profanity, shoving, kicking, spitting, high-sticking, low-sticking, tripping, punching, and making other players feel bad about themselves. Kevin McDermott performed in our intro. Our intern is Jason Perez, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Joe West. And now, back to Colin. You know, getting ready for the show today, one thing that I reread was a little piece about, uh, I think his name is Kenny Hudson, uh, who I believe is the first ever black NBA referee. Um, and it was in 1968, which it seems kind of late for there to be a black referee uh, in the NBA. And weird, the weirdest part of it is that he wasn't expected to uh, referee the first time he did. Uh, there was a snowstorm and, and some referee couldn't get there. And oddly enough, like many uh, forms of progress in the NBA, he had been nurtured along a little bit by Bill Russell. Uh, and Russell uh, had arranged with Red Auerbach 
for Palmer, I think, to do some refing in like uh, training camp games and stuff like that. So I think he was around Boston and, and wound up uh, getting uh, to ref this NBA game as a result of the snowstorm, which would be one of the rare occasions when Boston sports actually played a positive role in the integration of any sport. Uh, but I guess we should uh, cherish those little morsels wherever they come from. But um, since then, I mean, there are more and more uh, black officials uh, in the NBA. I just read an article about how nine of the 65 NBA officials right now attended historically black colleges and universities. Um, but the question might arise, you know, what uh, what difference does it make in terms of actually, you know, fouls called, the way the game is actually officiated? Uh, what difference does it make whether the refs are black or white or whatever? Well, this question was explored uh, in a scholarly fashion uh, by Joseph Price, associate professor of economics at Brigham Young University, lead author of a 2010 study uh, which oh, titled Racial Discrimination on, uh, Among NBA Referees, uh, which appeared in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. It's, this is really the story, however, and we should say that he, he did this with uh, Justin Wolfers, um, but this is really the story of two studies um, and maybe even kind of a third study if you count the one the NBA did. Uh, so we're going to uh, walk you through what was found and what changed. For, so first of all, Joseph Price, welcome to this conversation. Uh, thanks, Colin. So uh, let's just talk about the first study. Uh, what did you look at and what did you find? Uh, we just looked at uh, fouls called on NBA players and we were comparing black and white players and we compared across games where there was three white referees or three black referees or somewhere in between. Right. And, and, and so what did well, I mean, this is a complicated, multifarious <laughs> set of findings. So you didn't find just one thing, but in a way you found one tendency, right? Yeah. So you tend to get more fouls called on you if there's more referees of the other group. Um, and, and so uh, and we should say that there are like three referee teams. So in some ways, sometimes you were looking at, te at, at teams of referees uh, in which there was a racial preponderance one way or the other. Right. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and then sometimes even looking at teams where there were disparities in, in how much time uh, black and white players played on the court. In other words, you, you could even look at a team where um, black play, the black player minutes were, say, 15 percent higher or lower than the black player minutes of the other team. And, and that seemed to actually also result in a difference. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were looking at stuff at the individual level, but you can aggregate it up to the team level and it'll actually influence the outcomes of the game. So what you weren't saying was white officials don't like black players or and you weren't saying any of those kinds of things. But if you weren't saying those kinds of things, what kind of meaning are we expect, expected to extrapolate from your study? Uh, I think what you should extrapolate is that we all have implicit biases and that those implicit biases affect our decisions, especially when we have to make decisions in a snap judgment way. Right. So there, there may be like little things in my head where, you know, it looks different when to me when Grayson Allen trips somebody than when, you know, Jason Tatum trips somebody or something like that. That just somehow or other looks different or it just doesn't get processed the same way. It's not a conscious bias. It's not an intent to, to discriminate. Um, however, a study like this is exactly the kind of study that the NBA wishes that nobody had ever done. Uh, and so their reaction to the news of your study was not one of celebration and happiness. What did they do about it? So they, uh, they commissioned their own study. They got on NPR. They were all over the news saying that, you know, Justin Wolfers and Joseph Price don't know what they're talking about. Their study's flawed. There's no racial bias in the NBA. Um, so they, they really went out of their way to discredit what we were doing. 
And then they did their own study, right? They did their own study. That's correct. Yeah. And what happened there? Uh, so we were able to, they didn't share the data that they used in their study. So we shared our data with anyone that wanted to look at it. We weren't able to look at their data, but we were able to look at their report and use some kind of mathematical tools to back out uh, our results. And in fact, um, we learned some things from their study that we didn't know that the racial bias is greater for players who don't play a lot. Um, so, it, you know, uh, high profile players like LeBron James probably aren't experiencing a lot of racial prejudice. Right, but the player who just walks out on the court for the last six minutes of the game or something like that, so he has no reputation, no no special status with anybody, is, is maybe going to suffer a little bit more of this. And and did you find that the bias cut both ways? In other words, does a preponderantly black officiating crew uh, call more fouls uh, against white players than black players? Well, I mean, this is why we really wanted to work with the NBA, because they have the internal data about whether the call was right or not. Mm-hmm. We don't have a standard of truth. Right. So if I knew the standard of truth, then I could actually see, is it black refs that are deviating more or white referees? Um, and so this is where judicial data is better because you can take like the blood alcohol level, which is a standard of truth, and you mm. can see how people are judged relative to that standard. We don't have something like a blood alcohol standard of truth in the NBA. Right. You just got you got numbers of files called basically right, in yeah. order to look at. So uh, the other thing that you became curious about was whether anything changed. And, yeah. and so you did another study. Tell us when you did the study and, and what it what it turned uh, up. Yeah, we did the other study just a few years ago. So the 2007, a bunch of media attention about this. It was on the front page of The New York Times. Charles Barkley talked about it. Um, I mean, there was a big buzz about it, and I'm pretty sure that every referee heard about it. Mm-hmm. And so we were curious that if someone uh, makes known your biases, if you can do anything about it. And so in the follow-up study, we found that actually referees started calling fewer fouls overall and that the, the racial gap basically disappeared within that first season. Hmm. So, um, and, and I mean, there's, once again, no way to really uh, adduce motive from all this. But that's right. It, 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 at least one sensible, reasonable conclusion would be, yeah, they got the message uh, and, and tried to correct. Well, this is fascinating stuff. I guess the next study you have to do now because of the composition change of the NBA is whether homegrown players are treated differently than players from uh, Europe and, and other continents, right? I oh, mean, for sure. I mean, that's been the biggest change in the NBA is that, you know, we haven't seen the racial composition change, but the fraction of players who of white players from the U.S. has gone down a ton. Right. So that'll be your next study, right? You have to find sure. out. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, Joseph Price, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Yep. Uh, and uh, that concludes our conversation uh, about referees today. I want to thank Josh Nalea for orchestrating this again. Uh, we went a lot of different places, uh, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know sports isn't always like the biggest thing for NPR people, but you know, as Joseph Price just said, I mean, you know, when this the NPR NPR does cover stuff like this sometimes, and so does the New York Times, and so does Charles Barkley, and of course Charles Barkley by of the three is by far the most important. Thanks for listening.